We'll hear argument now on number 98-238, Togo West versus Michael Gibson. Uh, Ms. McDowell. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has the authority to award compensatory damages in the administrative process to redress violations of Title VII by agencies of the federal government. That authority is conferred by two provisions of Title 42 read together. The first is Section 2000E16, which authorizes the EEOC to award appropriate remedies in the administrative process against federal agencies that violate Title VII. The second is Section 1981A, which authorizes awards of compensatory damages in Title VII actions against the federal government. But it it doesn't specifically say by the EEOC in that section, does it? No, it doesn't, Mr. Chief Justice. But we believe that the two sections read together provide the EEOC with that authority. Essentially, by waiving the government's uh, sovereign immunity with respect to compensatory damages, that made um, compensatory damages also an appropriate remedy that may be awarded in the administrative process. Do Do many administrative agencies award compensatory damages? Yes, they do. Um, agencies themselves award it, and the EEOC on appeal um, also awards them in the administrative process. In, in those instances, is there judicial review from the amount uh, from, from, from the agency award? Uh, if an employee or applicant for employment is dissatisfied with the award that's made at the administrative level, he can bring an action de novo in district court. What about um, the government? Agency does not, though. An agency in the other could. instance, in the other statutory instances that you mentioned in your answer to the Chief Justice, I'm, I'm curious to know, are there any instances in which the government is bound and cannot uh, have judicial review of the amount of compensatory damages awarded by an agency? Uh, there are other statutory schemes that are somewhat similar. For example, the Federal Employees' Compensation Act, which compensates uh, employees who are injured and killed on the job, uh, doesn't have a judicial review mechanism. So the Solicitor General is arguing here for the proposition that the government is subject to unreviewable damage awards on the part of the EEOC. Essentially, yes, Your Honor, that Congress made that determination in 1972 when it provided that only employees and applicants for employment um, uh, can challenge EEOC But, but at that time, there were no compensatory damages available. That's correct, Your Honor, but there were back pay awards and, and other sorts of awards, including reinstatement, promotion, and so on, that in many senses are more intrusive to agencies than uh, compensatory damages. Uh, presently, uh, Uh, Of course, back pay and compensatory damages are both available in the administrative process, and the back pay awards exceed the compensatory damages award by a factor of uh, at least three. The government would have the usual appeal uh, if if the uh, the damages were awarded in the district court. That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, The Court of Appeals construed Section 1981A as limiting the government's waiver of sovereign immunity to proceedings in court in which um, a jury trial would be available. That position is incorrect for at least three reasons. First, the Court of Appeals' position is inconsistent with the administrative exhaustion requirement of Section 2016C, which is a condition on the government's waiver of sovereign immunity under Title VII. May I just clarify one other thing about the damages? Supposing that the uh, employee is dissatisfied, gets damages from the EEOC, but he's dissatisfied with the amount, is it your view that the employee can go still file an action seeking greater damages? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. You may. And one further clarification. Is the EEOC a necessary stop for the employee, or can the employee 
go from the agency to court. If the agency says no, uh, no discrimination or discrimination but no back pay, can the employee skip over the EEOC? Yes, Your Honor, the EEOC is an optional choice, although it certainly is a choice that uh, is made by most employees in the process. For example, in fiscal 1997, approximately 1,000 cases were filed by employees in court. Uh, approximately 7,000 appeals to the EEOC were taken. That suggests that uh, the EEOC is a desirable route for a large number of employees. But it might have made sense for Congress to say, if you want damages, you go immediately to court, uh, and uh, if you don't want damages, you can go to the EEOC. It might have made sense, but Congress did not say that. Congress didn't disturb the administrative exhaustion requirement, which had always been understood to enable an employee or applicant to obtain full relief in the administrative process. But you say it's not exhaustion once it's an option that the employee can go there or not. And it was, it's the second leg of your argument that I'm having difficulty with, I don't understand the extent of your exhaustion waiver or whatever. Suppose the employee never asked the agency, just said to the agency, you discriminated me against me on the basis of sex. And the agency says, and he doesn't specify damages, it was a he in this case. Uh, does he forfeit? compensatory damages by not asking for it before the agency, or does the forfeiture come only from not asking for it before the EEOC? It would be in our position in that situation that he would forfeit that by not um, asking for them at the agency level as well. Is it true that most of these people at the agency level are not represented by counsel? I believe that's correct, Your Honor. At least a large number of them are not. Uh, that's not to suggest, however, that most of them aren't asking for compensatory damages. Indeed, they are. Um, but a layperson, really, terms like compensatory damages, they're not familiar with those words. Does the agency or the EEOC have some kind of set of counsel, instructions, advice that says, when you file a complaint with us, this is what you can complain about. These are the possible remedies. So then we could say, well, the employee saw that. It's an intelligent action. There's no requirement um, that an employee be specifically advised of what sort of remedies he can receive. However, the EEOC does have uh, procedures that agencies are required to follow, that if an employee says anything to indicate that he has suffered uh, compensatory damages, if he mentions emotional distress, for example, if he mentions that he's seen a doctor, the agency is supposed to make further inquiry to see whether a compensatory damages claim is indeed appropriate in that case. So the agency um, and the EEOC are not uh, allowed to rely on an employee's failure to use particular magic words uh, to request compensatory well, damages. Well, how does the agency know, then, what amount of compensatory damages are being sought when it's defending these charges in the, in the EEOC? Uh, well, presumably, the employee, if he has made a claim for compensatory damages, uh, bears the burden of proof, and the EEOC has held this, of establishing the, both the amount and the nexus to the alleged discrimination. Do, does the employee file some sort of a paper that says, you know, I want $50,000 in compensatory damages uh, before the, uh, in the EEOC proceedings? 
Well, the um, second step, actually, the um, administrative process is the filing of a formal complaint at the agency level, and that typically, as in this case, asks the employee, what relief are you asking for? And in this case, uh, Mr. Gibson requested back pay. He didn't request compensatory damages. And so, but uh, under your view, he didn't waive compensatory damages by not asking for them? That's the the view that the EEOC has taken, is that he doesn't necessarily have to request them in his complaint or in particular words, but he does have to identify the need for compensatory damages at some point. how, How does the agency know how to defend against a complaint like that if it doesn't even request compensatory damages? Um, well, typically that is why it's our position that the employee does need to raise the compensatory damages claim. If I the thought compen- you said just a minute ago he didn't have to. No, certainly he does. Uh, he doesn't have to say compensatory damages in so many words, or he doesn't necessarily have to say compensatory damages in his complaint, but at some point in the administrative process, he certainly does have to put the agency well, on but, notice. But could it be at the very — I mean, if he doesn't have to be do it in his complaint, which is where most claims for compensatory damages are made. Could he do it at at the very end? Well, then there would have to be an investigation to determine the um, um, amount of his claim and whether it is connected with the alleged discrimination. So at some point there would be a fact-finding process. In many of these cases, there's actually an administrative hearing before um, an EEOC administrative judge at the agency level. And at that point, at, at times, the evidence that's taken on compensatory damages claims can be quite extensive, including reports from competing psychiatrists and so on. Doesn't it put the agency in a <clears throat> rather peculiar position? It's, it's defending against a claim and at the same time you're telling us that it will advise the, uh, the plaintiff uh, exactly what claim he has? You, you, you see that, that, that if he sees that, uh, if the agency sees that there's a basis for a compensatory claim, the agency will tell him to make a compensatory claim? The um, EEOC has held that it's appropriate when an employee indicates that he's suffered that kind of damage um, to make further inquiry to see if, if what he is really seeking well, I, compensatory damages. I thought you said you said I thought you were referring about the agency by which he was employed. He initially goes to that agency, doesn't he? That's correct. Yes. Now, and there's a, a and you say he has to make the compensatory claim before that agency as well. Yes, although the EEOC has said that in some instances he may defer raising the claim if if he's not aware of it until he gets to the EEOC level, the second level. In that case, if he raises it first before the EEOC, the typical procedure is for it to be remanded. But but ordinarily he has to raise it before the employing agency, right? And you're saying that the employing agency is going, what, out of the goodness of its heart to advise him that he has a compensatory claim, which it should — it puts the employing agency in a strange position. It's both defending against the claim and supposedly advising the plaintiff uh, as to uh, what claim he should make. Yes, he does. It, it does. And uh, uh, well, the EOC Powell, doesn't, doesn't the, the, the requirement — it is a peculiar kind of thing, but the, isn't the agency required — to have an EEO officer who, when people complain about discrimination, is there to aid the person. So you have the agency both as being assistant to the complainant and the agency is the adversary. But uh, am I wrong in thinking that the agency is obliged to have an EEO counselor? Yes, and that's the very initial phase of the whole EEO process is informal counseling, uh, and this is an effort to try to resolve these complaints before a formal complaint is By the agency that would be the adversary, the informal counseling. Yes, that is 
is a counselor of that agency. Yes. And that's this kind of a conflict of interest uh, where the agency is counseling the employee, and presumably that's to tell the employee what his rights are, and then the agency ends up being the, the target of whatever complaint the employee files. But the, but the agency does have that obligation to, to be a counselor to the employee. If that's correct, and as a practical matter, uh, there are different people performing these different functions within the agency. The EEO counselors are supposed to be independent of those who are making the determination on the merits of a claim when it comes to that. Tur- turning to the back to the sovereign immunity basic issue, uh, are there any other statutes in which the uh, agency has uh, discretion to determine the scope of a sovereign immunity waiver? We're not arguing that the agency has the discretion to well, determine Well, I thought you argued Chevron deference as, as to what is an appropriate remedy. Are you withdrawing that part of your argument? Uh, we don't perceive that we were making precisely that argument, Your Honor. Um, it's our position that there does need to be a clear waiver of sovereign immunity, and that was made here in Section 1981, that the question of appropriate remedies uh, by leaving this broad language in, in the statute uh, uh, well, your brief says, the EOC brief quotes the Chevron rule that you can fill in gaps that are left. It seems to me that uh, you're saying that we should uh, defer to your discretion in, in determining the scope of the waiver. Are, are there, is there any other statute where an agency is allowed to do this? Uh, not that we're aware of, Your Honor. Uh, returning to the uh, administrative exhaustion requirement of Section 2016, that requirement has always been understood to uh, provide a mechanism for full relief in the administrative process to um, enable employees and agencies not to have to go to court to litigate these issues. It would be inconsistent with that statutory design to require an employee um, who still, everybody agrees, must go to the administrative level to exhaust his claims of liability and, and equitable relief than to have to go to the district court to seek compensatory damages. What, what would happen if the employee goes to the agency, gets counseled by the EEO advisor who doesn't say anything about the various types of damages, skips over the EEOC, goes directly to the court. At that point, the employee has a lawyer and asks for back pay, compensatory damages, whatever. Would, would there be any forfeiture in such a case? Yes, Your Honor. The employee would still be required to have raised his claim for compensatory damages at the agency level. Even though we are envisioning an uncounseled employee and an officer in the agency who has the obligation to advise this uncounseled person about his rights? There's an obligation to advise about rights, but there's no requirement to advise about what remedies he should be requesting in the administrative process. So, yes, we we would say that... uh, his failure to exhaust um, administrative remedies by not requesting compensatory damages from the agency would um, uh, require the dismissal of his claim. That wouldn't necessarily mean that the claim would have to be dismissed with prejudice, however. It's our position that the um, exhaustion requirement itself is, is jurisdictional to the extent that the issue must be raised before the agency, but the time limits for exhaustion are not. So in cases where justice might require, the district court could dismiss a case without prejudice to enable the uh, employee to try to go back to his agency and, and exhaust the remedies that he failed to exhaust before. It seems to me that if the EEOC is monitoring this system, 
uh, it's very odd that there aren't instructions, as there are many cases, agencies will give a party appeal instructions, if you don't like what we did, you go here, and, and not to tell an uncounseled employee who just says, I want money, uh, what, what the options are, and for the government to be advocating that, that kind of a forfeiture, that kind of an, a, a waiver, an unintelligent waiver seems to me strange. Well, in many circumstances, Your Honor, um, somebody who is seeking uh, relief from the government is required to inform himself or herself of, of what the statutory remedies provide. Now, well, uh, when, we go, when we go to court, that's a different kind of setting. But here we're before the agency where it's supposed to be not an adversary relationship at first, at the very first stage. It's a, the agency says, here, we'll give you a counselor. The counselor will tell you all about what your rights are. And then you say, well, the council should have told him, but he waves something he didn't know about. It just strikes me as uh, strange. Well, as we say, it wouldn't entirely preclude an employee who could establish once he went to court that he had a good reason for not having raised the claim before. Uh, it's our understanding that most employees are quite well informed of their ability to obtain compensatory damages. <laughs> Currently, I understand of, of those cases that are appealed uh, to the EEOC in which compensatory damages are theoretically available because they're under Title VII or the Rehabilitation Act that in excess of 80 percent involve requests for compensatory damages. So I, I don't think the situation you posit of employees being Uninformed well, who is, who is informing them, then, if they are not now asking for something that a layperson would that, — that term, as you said, that magic term, wouldn't spring into the head of an uncounseled? So you said, and that may be the, what's happening now, but are they being advised by someone that there is this possibility? Well, as I indicated previously, once an employee puts the agency on notice uh, that he suffered emotional loss, uh, medical expenses, something of that nature, uh, then the agency is supposed to make inquiry. But as a general matter, in every case across the board, there's no instruction from the EEOC that uh, employees have to advise uh, employers have to advise employees of any uh, particular uh, remedies that are available to them, whether it's back pay or yeah, statement. Yes, a backfield question. Just to, in, uh, you said I think there's 7,000 complaints with the EEOC every year. Are those involving government employees? That's right? correct, yes. And in 80 percent of those damages have been awarded by the EEOC? No, in 80 percent of those cases there's a claim for compensatory damages, which suggests simply that employees and, but, are aware but what of roughly is the percent in which claims of Compensatory damages are made. Do you know? Well, that, that's the 80%. That's the 80%. Oh, that's the 80%. Yes. Oh, I see. But then, now, does the EEOC write some kind of an opinion when it disposes of these cases? Yes, it does. And they're all reported, are they? Uh, they're reported on Westlaw. They're reported through um, um, other mechanisms as well. Uh, they're not reported in a volume like FSUP, though. And there are cases in which the EEOC has awarded damages. And then the, the employee later sued and got more damages in court. I'm not aware of any actual cases in which that happened. However, theoretically, that's a possibility because an employee, if dissatisfied, can go to court. How many cases before the agency <coughs> uh, request compensatory damages? Do you know that? I'm not aware of that at, at this point, no. And that is probably a much greater number of cases than the cases that go to the commission. I mean, most of the cases 
resolved finally at the agency level? Most are. There were approximately uh, 26,500 cases resolved at the agency level in fiscal 97 as opposed to uh, 7,000 cases that were appealed. So one would think a lot of cases are going away at the agency level. About a quarter of the cases are settled at the agency level for relief that could include compensatory damages. Can the agency award compensatory damages? our position is yes, Your Honor. However, well, well, the Eleventh well, Circuit yeah. has held otherwise. And what would be the authority for that, the statutory authority? Uh, the statutory authority would be the same as the authority that applies to the EEOC itself. Um, there's further authority um, in Section 2016 saying that the agencies are those who have the primary responsibility in the federal government of enforcing equal employment opportunity. Well, d- does it say anything about them awarding, uh, the agency awarding uh, appropriate relief? No, there's nothing about the agency itself awarding appropriate relief, although there is authorization, of course, to the EEOC to uh, award appropriate remedies and for the EEOC also to promulgate rules and regulations. That doesn't help you much with the agency, though, does it? No, it doesn't. And it would be a very strange scheme, it seems to me, if you don't have to ask for compensatories at the agency level, but you do at the EEOC level especially since you could come directly from the agency to district court if you want. That's correct, and that's why it's, it's generally our position that one must raise it at the agency level. Uh, yeah, but there it are really those is one hypothesis built on another. I mean, you, 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 you have uh, questionable authority for requiring it to be raised before the EEOC, and your only authority for requiring it to be raised and allowing the, the, uh, the original agency to grant compensatory damages is, God, if, if you allow it at the EOC, it doesn't make any sense not to allow it at the agency. Well, there's one other point, Justice Scalia, and that is that everybody agrees that an agency can settle a claim for an amount that includes compensatory damages. The general um, rule there is that an agency can settle a claim for any sorts of damages that could be awarded ultimately in court. And so many of these cases in which compensatory damages uh, actually are paid over at the agency level involves settlements. Um, we're, so there's we're a talk- reason to exhaust just for that purpose. We're talking a lot of cases that will be dumped directly into district courts. I mean, more than the, what was it, 7,000 uh, from the EEOC. It, it may well be that a large number of cases that never got to the EEOC that were resolved at the agencies with compensatory relief would not be resolved there anymore, but would have to come to the district courts if the plaintiff wanted compensatory relief. That's correct. And and if the court decided the case in a manner that precluded the agencies from awarding it as well, that's true. Is there any sort of a contested proceeding before the agency? I mean, really, I thought the only way an agency could handle a case would be to settle it or else to deny relief. No, the... um, agency conducts an investigation and ultimately issues a decision on the merits if the case hasn't previously uh, been settled or or dismissed on procedural grounds. The um, employee can request a hearing as well before an administrative judge um, of the EEOC. That is requested in um, a third to a half of all cases. Do we find cases in which the agency awards compensatory damages against itself? Yes. It's not a large number of cases, but, um, but there are some. Yes. Could, could you focus for just a second, please, on the jury trial argument? I, I take the argument against you as being that 1981 says that in an action brought under 717, and this is an action brought under 717, a party can ask for compensatory damages. So you would have thought they could. But it says in C, 
that if a complaining party seeks compensatory damages, any party may demand a trial by jury. And since it's obvious the EEOC is not a place where you'd have a trial by jury, it's obvious that this doesn't apply to the EEOC, the waiver that's in 1981. That's the argument. And I'd like you to respond to that argument. We think that the most appropriate uh, construction of the jury trial provision as applied to federal employee cases is that if indeed a case reaches district court because the um, employee was not satisfied with either the administrative uh, agency's award or the EEOC's award, then either party can indeed request a jury trial. But this doesn't foreclose the EEOC from doing it. Now, has that ever been determined? I ask that because the argument continues. The government isn't going to be able to ask for a jury trial. They're going to be bound by the EEOC. Do you mean that a private party files the complaint for compensatories? They're denied and then does the whole thing over again in the trial court. Is that your position, that that's what that provision means? Yes. Uh, it's important it to know. Has it ever been uh, interpreted? Pardon me? Has it ever been interpreted? No, not that I'm aware of. The government's position is that means that if you don't get compensatories before the agency, you have a right under that provision to have the issue done anew in the trial court. That's correct, yes. Uh, It's important to recognize that the jury trial provision is a general provision. It was not directed specifically um, at the federal government. It's uh, part of a provision that applies to all Title VII cases, whether against the government or against private employees. Um, This provision was already in the legislation that became Section 1981A before uh, Senator Warner offered his amendment to extend compensatory damages to federal employees as well. First, the words appropriate remedies were also in 2016 before they included compensatory damages, weren't they? That's correct. And and Congress was certainly aware of that provision at the time that it enacted Section 1981A. If it had intended at that point to limit the available remedies to uh, appropriate equitable remedies, uh, presumably Congress would have said so. No, but the the amendment in 1981A, the jury trial point, emphasized it focuses on actions for damages. You think of of a judicial proceeding. And that indirectly is amending, in your view, also the authority of the EEOC under 2016. Yes. Yeah. yes. It's also important to um, uh, recognize that all of this legislation was enacted against a historical background of uh, Congress's um, historical aversion to jury trials on monetary claims against the government. Certainly that's reflected in the Tucker Act and the Federal Tort Claims Act, where a condition of the government Yes, but waiver. the government, there is a right to a jury trial on both sides once you get to court. In your that's view. correct, yeah. yes. So this is a, a somewhat different provision, but uh, in order to jump from, from the existence of this provision to a condition on the waiver of sovereign immunity is... Well, um, but this is less to- favorable to the government than simply having no jury trial for either party. Here, the plaintiff gets to go to district court if he's dissatisfied. The government doesn't get to go at all. Yes, and that's a choice that Congress made back in well, 1972, you, 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 Your Honor. You, you say that Congress made this choice when it favors your position. But then you say that traditional sovereign immunity principles suggest that the government doesn't like jury trials. The, the government certainly would rather have a jury trial than no trial at all, I would think. Well, Congress... Uh, uh, decided otherwise when it it determined that finality was more important than whatever extra accuracy would be obtained by judicial proceedings with respect to equitable relief, back pay, and so on under Title VII. Um, Of course, when the government has no trial at all, it's the government's own fault, right? Because it's it's the government itself which has given judgment against itself uh, at the agency instance, right? 
Well, to a certain extent, uh, yeah. one could look at it that you way. Blame it on itself. If there are no further questions, <laughs> I'd like to reserve the remainder. Very well, Ms. McDowell. Mr. Kelly, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to address initially uh, Justice Ginsburg's concerns about the uh, uh, issue as to how a, an employee goes about requesting compensatory damages. I think if you take a look at the appendix, the joint appendix in this case, at the two fold-out pages in the center, it's, uh, I believe, pages 23 and 24, you'll see the actual EEO form that Mike Gibson filled out back in uh, 1992 when this case initially arose. And you'll see in that form that there's really no place uh, for an employee to indicate uh, that he wants compensatory damages. The only question that's asked on this form relating to any kind of remedy at all asks not what injury you suffered, but what corrective action are you seeking. It's our position that this request for corrective action is uh, in direct lineage with the interpretation of the Federal Employee uh, Section of Title VII, which has always held that only equitable remedies were available for either Federal employees or private uh, employees of discrimination until the 1991 Act was passed. And I suppose it goes to the, uh, to the obligation to raise the, uh, the issue at the agency level. I mean, if I were reading that form, I, I, I would not get a hint from the section referring to corrective action that it might be appropriate for me to, to ask for damages. And, and that's exactly our position, both in the District Court and in the Seventh Circuit, with respect to uh, Mike Gibson's exhausting his administrative remedies and the argument that the government ought to be stopped from raising the bar of exhaustion in this particular case, because the facts are undisputed that Mike Gibson was never advised of a right to compensate Mr. Kelly, uh, the, the, yes. rec- the record, sh- your client's name is Michael Gibson on the record. Is there any particular reason that you refer to him as Mike? Uh, only because that's how I know him, Judge. Well, this is a court, not a jury. Just, Mr. Chief Justice, I, I, and, and I apologize. So you have a bad form there. They, maybe they should amend the form. I mean, well, <laughs> the fact that that doesn't uh, clearly say, and I'm, I, I agree with you, corrective action does not suggest compensatory damages. It suggests back pay, reinstatement, and so forth. Uh, so they should devise a new form. Well, and I mean, that may, well, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be critical. This may win your case, but it does, but not on the ground that you're arguing for, not on the ground that the, that the statute doesn't require it to be asked for, maybe on the ground that your client was misled or something. Well, and Justice Scalia, we have argued uh, all all three of those grounds. Uh, The Seventh Circuit decided the case on the sovereign immunity issue, uh, but we have have, uh, maintained the argument that Mike Gibson was deceived and, in fact, that Mike Gibson — We didn't uh, grant cert on that, did we? And and, and if if it came to that, we would probably, my guess is, remand to let them figure that out. You you did not, Your Honor, (laughs) but uh, — the, the opinions of this Court indicate that it's the judgment that's reviewed, not the reasoning of the, of the Court of Appeals, and all of the arguments that we've presented are uh, strong reasons to affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals, uh, if not according to the same reasoning. And we do agree with the reasoning of the Seventh Circuit. I point this out because uh, not only did, did the form 
draw Mike Gibson in a different direction, the regulations, the EEOC regulations, specifically require the agency and the EEOC to advise Mike Gibson of his rights and to uh, oversee this instruction of pro se litigants through the administrative system, and that was never done. Well, that, I, I, I repeat, that's really not the issue that we're interested in. Uh, why don't you assume, for purpose of your argument, that this form were required to be corrected, as the government would doubtless uh, say it ought to be, to say what, uh, what uh, not what corrective action are you seeking, but what um, uh, what remedies of any sort, including compensatory damages, are you seeking? And then, then what would your argument be? Well, and in that event, Your Honor, we have argued. Uh, also that Mike Gibson invoked the compensatory damage remedy by telling the investigator from the Veterans Administration that he was seeking a monetary cash award. The EEOC has ruled that uh, a request for an appropriate cash reward is a request for compensatory damages. And for the, the agency to take the position that monetary cash award is a request for compensatory damages and appropriate cash reward uh, is not a request or vice versa, uh, we think is a return to the hyper-technical exhaustion requirement that predates giving federal employees access to the federal courts in 1972. With regard to the sovereign immunity issue, we have argued uh, not only the uh, jury trial provision of Section 1981A, and I believe that that uh, Ms. McDowell misreads uh, Section 1981A-C because the the jury trial provision does not begin with if a case gets to federal district court, then you have a right to a trial by jury. It says if a complaining party — Where are you reading from, Mr. Kelly? I'm reading from uh, from Section 1981A-C. And where will we find that in the brief? Uh, Your Honor, that's in the appendix uh, to the cert petition. That's page 32A. Thank you. The statute says, if a complaining party seeks compensatory or punitive damages, then either party may demand a, tri- uh, a trial by jury. In this case, it, it, it must be conceded that a, a, a federal employee asking for compensatory damages at the administrative level is a party seeking compensatory or punitive damages. The, the uh, definition of complaining party specifically includes both actions and proceedings, and so that provision must refer to all instances when a party — And yet, clearly, no party can demand a trial by jury before the EEOC. Clearly, which is why we interpret Section 1981A to provide for compensatory damages at the federal district court level, not at the administrative level. In addition to the right to a jury trial, Section 1981A — A1, which is on page 31A of the appendix, provides uh, in the operative language granting the right to compensatory damages for, uh, for compensatory damages in an action uh, and skipping down to the bottom of the provision, 
in addition to any relief authorized by Section 706G of this the is, Civil Rights This is rights A1 you're reading from? This is A1 of 1981A. Uh, in addition to any relief authorized by Section 706G of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Those provisions, both by referring to an action as opposed to a proceeding and by referring to the judicial remedy provision of Title VII, which is Section 706G, uh, specifically refer to actions, civil actions, in federal district court and not to administrative proceedings. In Title VII, uh, as the Court recognized in New York Gaslight Club versus Carey, uh, in general, the term action refers to civil action, and when Congress is referring to more general uh, issues of state and local and administrative enforcement, it almost always uses the word proceeding. Or I don't — I, 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 I — going back for a second to your jury trial, which is the point that is confusing me at the moment, I might agree with you. I don't see how the government originally said that if it's not an administrative action, there'll be a lot of extra time, expense, disruption, delay. But to give them — you know, you remember that in their brief for petition for cert. I do, Your Honor. All right. I accept that that's not so if you're going to give two bites at the apple to every plaintiff. But in their brief on the merits here, they don't say the plaintiff gets two bites at every apple. What they say is maybe there isn't a jury trial right. But they say may, in footnote 19, do you remember that? When they go into that, they say maybe there is, maybe there isn't. It says if it, uh, it Arguably, at least, a federal employee is not proceeding under this section. Do you remember that? And it's and under this section you get the jury trial right. And, and, and it's — right, well, My question is, can you elucidate that a little bit? I mean, you'd, you'd, I'd, I'd get your point completely if it's really true there's a jury trial right, but I'm not sure they've conceded that in their brief. And, and uh, so I'd, I'd like a little bit of elaboration on the assumption that there isn't a jury trial right uh, for a plaintiff who says to, I want to, he says to the agency, I want a compensatory action. You get that before the agency, but maybe you don't get it in court. I've got it on the assumption you do get it in court, but what if it isn't? If you don't have a jury trial right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Justice, I'm not understanding, uh, uh, in what circumstance you might not get a jury, the right to a jury trial if you went to court. Okay, By my reading, what they say in their brief is a federal employee may not be proceeding under this section within the meeting of Section 1981A.C.1 when he seeks compensatory damages in the administrative process. He is instead proceeding under 42 U.S.C. 2000E.16B, which is discussed above, gives the EEOC the authority to enforce Title VII remedies. Maybe I didn't understand that properly. Uh, uh, as, as I understand the government's argument, uh, it is that they're proceeding under Section 717, or Section 2000E16, that is, uh, rather than under Section 1981A. And I think that there are several problems with that uh, approach. Mr. Cutley, before you describe the problems, did, did you understand that to me, the government to be saying that there's no right to jury trial in the court? I thought that this was just an explanation of why there is no right to jury trial before the agency. That, that's the way that I understand. Uh, maybe that's the explanation. Maybe that. Okay. I, that's Sorry. skip. It's the only reason I didn't underline footnote 19 in red when I read the brief. Uh, we, we can ask the Solicitor General to, to clarify that, but it seems absolutely clear that when you're in district court, you get a jury trial. That's what Congress 
provided. And, but your reading of this does seem to me a little strange because you're talking about, oh, they waive sovereign immunity, government waived sovereign immunity, but only in district court, not at the lower level. And yet Congress is acting in the interest of the government. When you get into court with a jury, there is the possibility of bigger bucks than what you would get before the agency. So it's in the government interest to get the things wrapped up at the agency level. So if they're going to waive sovereign immunity before a jury, then it seems most likely that they would say, of course, we'd rather have it disposed of without making it a federal case and without the possibility of a jury making the award. Well, and, Judge, I think that the answer to that is that uh, the the Title VII procedures for federal employees have always been perceived as primarily a conciliatory mechanism and not necessarily an adjudicatory one. The idea in the agency is to resolve the problem, get the employee back on track and and working and working at at the level that he should be working, and that can be done by, by offering compensatory damages, by offering uh, equitable relief, and there's no bar uh, in the statute to voluntary uh, mechanisms uh, for, for achieving that. What there, what, where the problem comes in is having the agency award compensatory damages or having the EEOC force an agency to spend money in compensatory damages uh, to an employee. And I think that there are, are, are really four reasons that Congress would have conferred this right uh, in a federal district court and not in an administrative agency. The first is the independence and objectivity of the judicial branch. These employment discrimination suits are are mainly intramural events uh, between executive branch officials and their agencies or between the agencies and the EEOC. Before you go on to that, can you go back to what you said before? Because I'm not sure I grasped it. I thought, are you saying that if the agency wants to, it can. What authority, in your view, does the agency and EEOC have to, with respect to compensatory damages? It, Judge, it's, uh, it's our, I'm sorry, Justice Ginsburg, it's, it's our understanding that the government, like a private, private litigant, uh, is able to offer uh, relief or damages uh, in settlement in anticipation of a liability. The, the liability for compensatory damages at the federal district court level, we believe, authorizes the agency to offer a settlement. This, this is done voluntarily, not under compulsion, not uh, — and, and only — I didn't know that the agencies had authority to voluntarily waive sovereign immunity unless Congress sanctioned that. Well, it's our position that they, they don't have the ability to voluntarily waive sovereign immunity. But you just said that they could make a settlement that included and, compensatory damages. And, and, it's, and it's my understanding that the, that the federal government is able to make a settlement, uh, to, to engage in voluntary negotiation in the same way that a private party is, which is different than well, the exercise of government. There's, there's some general settlement statute, isn't there? I think there used to be. I, I believe that this is, and, and there's uh, the Comptroller General's office has, has issued regulations that indicate that 
uh, a settlement in anticipation of, regu- of uh, litigation is uh, an appropriate uh, means. And is, isn't, isn't that the answer? They, they can always anticipate that at some point uh, the, the claimant will end up in, in court, and they know that if the claimant ends up in court, there can be damages, so, so therefore their settlement authority would, would include uh, the, the payment of something with respect to compensatory damages. That would, isn't that the answer to the, sort of the waiver problem? There. That's much much more succinct. Than Trouble is, I, I don't know of any settlement authority settled for more than is asked for. <laughs> and, and if what you're allowed to ask the agency for is is uh, restitution, you know, back pay and, and reinstatement, um, it, it's hard to come under a settlement authority. When, you know, you're asking for 100000 the agency says, ah, we'll settle for two. Uh, I doubt whether that comes within the, the, the settlement authority. It, May I? I'm sorry. Have you answered his question? I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I, I, I'm not sure uh, if that, it was a that, question. That's what you're saying, isn't it? That, that, that you can come before an agency with with not no compensatory claims, just reinstatement and and back pay, and say, you know, I want a hundred thousand dollars, and the agency says, well, we'll you know we'll settle for two. Can the agency do that? Like like any other litigant, if the if the complainant says. If you don't give me a hundred thousand dollars, I'll take you to court. I think that the agency has the ability to take into consideration a compensatory damage claim that will be made in the future in order to settle the So case all, all he has to say is, I want back pay, I want reinstatement, and I want a hundred thousand dollars. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to go to court. That's right. And and it's clear that Congress gave whether he's correct or not. Uh, in wanting $100,000 for compensatory damages, uh, it's clear that Congress gave him the right to go to court whether uh, whether he gets it or not. You you were in the midst of four reasons, and the first one was the, I I guess, the relative objectivity of the court? That's right. The the judiciary acts as a check in that instance on executive officials awarding non-pecuniary compensatory damages. Yeah, but isn't the danger not that executive officials are are going to give the bank away, but that a jury is going to give the bank away? Well, and and that's the second reason, Your Honor, and that's the expertise of the federal district court and juries in awarding compensatory damages. Compensatory damages have been committed to the judgment of juries and, and judges uh, for uh, at least a couple of hundred years. Because your you're expertise right. of juries? <laughs> That's the reverse Chevron doctrine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your, your argument has to be the same, I take it, for punitive damages. Well, there are no, there are no punitive damages available against the federal government. May I ask you a question about this? I really am confused about this statutory scheme, I have to confess. I had read, before getting more confused during the argument, the <laughs> 2000 E-16B as the grant of authority to EEOC, where the EEOC was the original, uh, uh, you might say the Nizai Prius Tribunal, where an original complaint is filed with them. But actually in the system as it actually works, the EEOC is sort of an appellate tribunal. It reviews what the separate agencies do. Is there any statutory language anywhere that says that what they're supposed to do, that they have a review function that, in effect, passes on? And if so, where is it? uh, 
The same section, uh, subsection B, indicates that the EEOC uh, may promulgate rules, regulations, or Right. But what decide cases that are on review of decisions by other agencies? Does anything say that? The, well, there, there's, a, there's a kind of a glancing blow at that uh, idea in, se- in Section 2000E16C, which refers to the procedure that needs to be followed before the case goes to federal district court. That refers to uh, the time limits after an agency decision and if there is an appeal yeah. to the EEOC then the time Thank limit you. after the EEOC. Can uh, you just I, add one, one quick one? Uh, surprisingly <laughs> enough, it did clarify the role of the jury in my mind. The, the, the uh, other thing I'm not certain on is I gather, in historically speaking, there is what I heard was the government say about 80 percent of these types of complaints before the EEOC do ask for some kind of compensatory damages in some way or other. Have you any rough idea of how many cases they were granted in? Is this zero? Is this the first one? Is it is it uh, 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 do we have any r- rough idea of what the history is? There, there, there are some published statistics. Unfortunately, the EEOC doesn't keep its statistics according to the number of compensatory damages uh, cases where awards were made. And so it's impossible to say how many, in how many cases compensatory damages were awarded. But there has been money awarded uh, both at the EEOC level and at the agency level for compensatory damages. According to the statistics. So there's some kind of practice in history of them awarding compensatory damages. Well, there, beginning in, beginning in 1992 with the Jackson decision, which, by the way, is not published and, and was not published uh, in Westlaw or the, uh, any of the private reporters, not all EEOC decisions are published in those, in those sources. But beginning, uh, beginning in 1992, uh, agencies grudgingly began to uh, award compensatory damages, or at least consider awards of compensatory damages uh, in certain cases, uh, and, and the EEOC uh, generally uh, has has remanded cases for consideration of compensatory damages rather than awarding them itself. But there are some cases where the EEOC has awarded compensatory damages. Can you go back to finish your fourth? I mean, yeah, I mean, for our attention span is really not that long. I, I'm glad you didn't have seven or eight points because. Uh, it, <laughs> The, what are three third, and four? Could you the, tell us the, quickly? The, the third reason, I think, is parity of federal employees and private employees. And in, in this situation, finally, I think Congress has managed to put federal employees and, and uh, private employees on an equal standing with regard to compensatory damages. When they've attempted that in the past, uh, they, they've, they've, they've failed for, for various reasons. But they have not put private employers and federal employers on, the, on a parity, have they, for damages? Uh, they, with respect so, so far as the right to go from the agency to court. With respect to all of the damages except punitive damages, I believe that they are on a parity. Well, a, pri- a private employer can uh, appeal an uh, EEOC award to the district court, can it not? The EEOC doesn't make awards against private employers. The, the function of the EEOC in private cases is, ho- is entirely uh, conciliatory and mediation. There's no so it has to go to court itself. It, those to cases it. go to court, or they're settled before they get to court. And how does it work with the legislative employees? Because that's yet another scheme. We have the private sector, we have the federal government, and what is the, the legislative employees? Well, the, the, the Congressional Accountability Act sets up 
I think yet another scheme, administrative scheme, for awarding compensatory damages, and that's an election system. After 90 days, the federal uh, the, the congressional employee has the option of either staying in an administrative process where the administrative agency is explicitly given the power to award both uh, equitable and compensatory damage type relief, or he can elect to go outside of the administrative system and straight to uh, federal district court. If in the, for the legislative employee, if he elects the administrative route, the EEOC route, is, is, can he, as in the case of an executive employee, go to court at the end of the line for de novo review if he's dissatisfied? No. It's, it's not technically the EEOC that he goes to. It's an administrative agency within the Congress. Right. But, yeah. no, those cases so are — So it's self-contained. It's either you get the court route or you get the administrative route, but you don't get, as with executive employees, you can go to the EEOC if you want to, but you've always got a right in the end to come to court. That's correct, Judge. I gave up, Mr. Kelly. I'm not going to wait for your fourth point. Four. I, I have — I have uh, a, a question that has perplexed me. What, what, what happens when, you, when a claimant brings uh, an action or a proceeding before, uh, administratively, is unsatisfied with the result, uh, and therefore may institute suit in district court for the back pay and the reinstatement remedy, right? Correct. Now, that same claimant under your system, if he had a uh, — a compensatory damages uh, claim would have filed a compensatory cl- damages claim in district court. Correct. Now, do those two district court actions now proceed separately? It's it's my understanding that the federal employee is still required to exhaust administrative remedies with respect to the equitable relief, and therefore it would not be until after uh, the administrative process was exhausted, right. that he would make both the claim for equitable relief and the compensatory damage. Why? Why would he make them all together? I mean, why couldn't he file a suit immediately uh, for the compensatory relief while he's asking for the other relief administratively if there's no exhaustion requirement? Well, uh, it, it would be difficult to point to the statute and say what the answer to that question is, but uh, in Brown versus General Services Administration, this Court interpreted Section 2000E16C to mean that the uh, federal employee is required as a prerequisite to, to going into federal court to exhaust administrative remedies. But, but you're telling us there's no exhaustion. I mean, I thought your whole case was that there's no exhaustion requirement in this situation. There's, there's no requirement to present the uh, compensatory damage claim to the agency. There's a right to present a compensatory damage claim in the first instance to the federal district court. I believe that, there, that there's merit in, this, in the suggestion that a, a federal employee could bring a compensatory damage claim separately. I, I wonder whether uh, — if he, if he brought them all together, if he waited for uh, the agency to deny his back pay and reinstatement claim, and then he could bring them all together and get a jury trial on the back pay and, and uh, reinstatement, which he would not get otherwise. I don't, I, I, I don't think that that's the way that it would work, Your Well, Honor. if you're entitled to a jury, you're entitled to a jury on all the factual questions in the case. You can't have the jury deciding the facts one way and the judge deciding it another for the other two issues. I mean, surely the jury would, would determine all the factual matters, wouldn't it? I, I, I 
I believe that the jury would determine the factual matters in that it would determine whether whether discrimination occurred and what amount of compensatory damages was available. And, I think and, that the judge could then determine after the jury had had decided those facts, based on the facts, whether equitable relief, in addition to the compensatory damages, was was a, appropriate in that circumstance. But the amount of back pay due, that factual matter, would be decided by the jury, I guess, wouldn't it? The amount of uh, and the and the level of reinstatement to which he's entitled, I assume that's a factual matter. That'd be decided by the jury. I don't know. I, I mean, it, it just changes the scheme a whole lot. That's what I'm saying. It, when, when you pour them all into one action, um, I, it, I, and and I, I agree that it does change the scheme. I I understand that in in at least most cases, in in all of the cases that I've seen. Uh, the jury's determination as to discrimination and compensatory damages would determine the the outcome of the equitable well, relief, you, you, except you for — You don't have to read subsection C the way you're reading it. It's, it says, if a complaining party seeks co- compensatory or punitive damages under this section, any party may de- demand a jury trial. You could read that as be limiting the right to jury trial to the demand for compensatory damages. That's that's correct. I, I was refer. I'm sorry. I was referring to 2000 E 16 C, which is the federal employee section of Title VII, not the new compensatory damage remedy. And that provision has been has been determined by the court in Brown versus General Services Administration to require exhaustion prior to. Uh, but Mr. Kelly, I thought I thought your point was that to the extent that. There are common fact questions like, was there discrimination? How long did it go on? Sure. If you have a combined legal and equitable claim, the jury goes first, and the jury's findings of fact become issue preclusive on the judge. That was settled in Beacon Theaters and Dairy Queen decades ago by this court. I, I believe that's correct. Thank you, Mr. Kelly. Uh, Ms. McDowell, you have two minutes remaining. Uh, to respond to Justice Breyer's. Oh, no, comment. you needn't. I think I understand it. The key are the words this section. This section refers to 1981 Yes, it is the position that, that there is a jury trial available if the case ripens into an action in district court. It's our position that the jury in that sort of case would determine issues of liability as well as issues of compensatory damages, although uh, equitable relief would continue to be awarded by the court. Um, following the jury's uh, decision. In terms of the question about the historical practice of awarding compensatory damages at the uh, administrative level, uh, we don't have a count on the exact number of cases. However, in fiscal 1997, $3.5 million worth of compensatory damages were awarded at the agency level, uh, since often these awards uh, agency quite level, do you mean the EEOC? Or no, the, the agency level, okay. um, the initial level. Since often these uh, awards are really quite small, $500, $1,000, $2,000, that could be a large number of cases, but we don't have a count on that. Um, if there are no further questions from the court. Uh, yes, I have one oh. further, and that's, again, on the, uh, the forfeiture waiver, whatever you call it. It seems that if you are insisting that the employee asked for this before the agency, asked for it before the EEOC, instead of taking it out of a general demand for relief, then you're asking for a, a for an exactness in the administrative proceeding that 
54C says in court, it says the court will give you the relief to which you're entitled even if you haven't asked specifically for it. Yes, but 54C talks about relief that you have actually proven, and that's consistent with the EEOC's position here, that if you have proven uh, compensatory damages in the administrative process, yes, you can recover them, but uh, an agency in the EEOC shouldn't be forced to guess at, at what damages you may have suffered. Thank, Thank you. you, Ms. McDowell. The case is submitted.